1: This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor.
2: Welcome to Turning Hard, Times and Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm speaking to you from New York City on the seventh day of July 2020. Before I talk more about today's show, I do like to remind you I'm the editor of Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. You can sign up for that newsletter by going to miningstocks.com. Miningstocks.com, and I would suggest that now is the best time that I've seen in a long time, uh, to consider subscribing to my letter because uh, these junior mining companies that I'm following are really are really moving very aggressively and uh, making people that own them a lot of money. So it is a good time, 718-457-1426. You can go there, uh, give us a call during normal working hours, or just simply go to miningstocks.com and sign up uh, for the letter there. Also encourage you to consider signing up for Chen Lin's letter. Chen uh, does well in the mining uh, space as well, but his, uh, his real winners have come more recently, at least, in the biotech sector. So if you're interested in someone who covers the exciting um, high-risk, high-reward biotech sector, Chen Lin is your place to go to for that. Uh, I do want to thank all of you for listening to this show, making it one of the more popular shows in the Voice America business channel. And I also uh, want to encourage you to continue sending along your questions comments, whatever they may be, to Taylor at gmail.com. Questions at number four at gmail at dot com. Um, Also want to thank our sponsors because without them there would be no show. Our sponsors this week, Great Bear Resources, Benchmark Metals, Hannon Metals, Irving Resources, Novo Resources, and Sitka Gold Corp. Normally, Michael Oliver would be with us today every other week, but uh, due to a scheduling conflict, he is unable to be uh, with me and to join me today. He is scheduled to be back next week, however, but in his absence, I thought I would pass along a couple of his comments from this past weekend's 360-degree weekend report Michael puts out every Saturday or Sunday, and it's uh, that in itself is well worth the subscription. Uh, he has missives that come out during the week, too. He covers lots and lots of markets besides the ones he normally talks to us about when he's on the show. But I'll just uh, pass along a couple of remarks that he made in his 360 weekend report uh, concerning gold and silver and a couple of the things that we track, mostly in the equity markets. Regarding the equity markets, Michael wrote, and I quote, the action since June 11th, that is the sharp drop day, has been repeatedly groping to get back up to 3200 to rejoin that four days of action up there in early June. But so far, with repeated rallies, even Thursdays, the market has failed to achieve that and failed to uh, erase that possible island top. The clock is ticking. Get it done, bulls, or watch this process roll over. End of quote. Well, as we were going to uh, to the uh, to start this show today, it was uh, the S&P 500 was selling at 3160. Uh, I see it's uh, right now at 3159. Uh, so it is a, a little ways below that key level that Michael thinks, but he thinks they better get it done quickly or it's going to roll over. So Michael has been bearish on the equity market. I think it surprised him uh, its its resilience and its ability to stay up there. But, hey, they keep throwing trillions of dollars into the system, and if it can't get out into the real economy, it stays in the financial markets. Well, I would say that's the reason stocks are going on, and there is indeed, unfortunately, a major, major disconnect between the equity markets and what's happening in the real economy. Um, no matter what Donald Trump might tell you or anybody thats off in office, all the presidents always um, put out uh, reports that are suspect, I think. So either party, that's been my experience in the past. Anyway, other things that Michael had to say, he commented on Microsoft, uh, commented and gave charts, always gives charts, uh, various commodities including soybeans, sugar, base metals, with regard to silver, let me just quote what he said about that. He said, silver has a pending level overhead on its annual momentum that we've specified before. Trade to 20% over the zero line, 36-month average, and this annual momentum chart will blow its cork with a triple top breakout. Two prior peaks in 2016 and 2019 halted precisely at 19.4% over the 36 month average. The 20% breakout number applicable for July is a trade up to $19.48. That's a 78 cent troy ounce above last week's traded high in July silver. So he's looking at the July contract. I am uh, I keep my eyes on, this, on the spot contract, but the, uh, the forward is usually much, is, is considerably higher. So, anyway, Michael says, see that, and if you see that level, 1948, expect silver to begin an advance that takes it to the undesirable, or the underside, I should say, not undesirable if you're a bull, it's very desirable, to the underside of $30 before any serious pause. So, in other words, get over 1948, and Michael thinks that we're going to see a, a straight line pretty much up towards $30 for silver. And as we were going to the show, uh, silver was trading on the spot market at 1827-bit, 1838-ask. Regarding senior gold mining stocks as compared to the more junior stocks, those that are closer to the kind of companies that I cover in my newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks, Michael showed a couple of charts displaying the juniors as measured by by GDXJ is catching up with their more senior brethren, GDX. Now, you need to see the charts in Michael's letter to really appreciate this, but the GDXJ has broken through the underside of a downturn, downtrend channel uh, and is looking very strong at this point relative to GDX. You know, you need to go to OliverMSA.com, OliverMSA.com, uh, and sign up for Michael's letter to really get the full advantage. Michael comes on. He shares his time with us. He'll be with us next week. But Michael Oliver is really worth listening to, really worth reading more than listening to, uh, and his charts are, are really, really helpful in understanding, and they've been, he's been so helpful to me, which is why he, I have him on so constantly on this show. I would just add that the really big miners in a bull market like the one we're in now, the really big gold miners are the first to move. Then the smaller companies begin to move as the large fish start to devour or seek after and swim and, uh, and consume the smaller ones. Assuming the bull market in gold will continue as I do through 2021, I really believe that we're going to see an increasing number of mergers and acquisitions as the big companies are are really depleting their reserves and can't really find them fast enough to replace what they're producing. And this will inevitably lead to bidding, I think, abo- among the big boys for the smaller producers that can help sustain the lives of the big mining companies. It will also lead to the acquisition of major new gold deposits, several of which are emerging uh, with the exploration companies that I follow at Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks, uh, which you can subscribe to again by going to miningstocks.com. Now, one company that figures to be hunted down by the majors is Great Bear Resources, which put out yet another fantastic assay on Monday. I believe this is a 10 million-plus ounce gold deposit in the making uh, in uh, Ontario at the Red Lake in the red lake district of ontario and i think it figures to be one of the major prizes that i believe the big guys are going to be looking after uh... chris taylor the president of great bear will be with me next week uh, to give us an update but i can tell you personally that i am hanging on to the remaining shares that i own in great bear for dear life i this report that was put out this past weekend showed continuing high grades at depth and in fact the width of the zones and the high grades are expanding at depth. Uh, it's continuous uh, the uh, the drill results are showing amazing continuity which is always important you don't want blank spots in between uh, gold, gold de- deposits but if you have continuous gold mineralization that really adds to the economics. Uh, the size of this thing just keeps getting bigger, the depth keeps they keep hitting deeper holes that are still mineralized. Uh, it is an amazing story and one that I think hasn't seen It's peaked by any means at at this point in time Uh, in terms of the deposit. Of course, as they start to delineate the resource, I think more and more people will have a firm grasp of just how valuable uh, that company's Dixie project is. In addition to Great Bear, there are several other stocks that I follow in my letter that I think have the potential to become major winners. Companies like Noble Resources, Irving Resources, Klondike Gold, Lion One, Galway Metals, Sitka Gold Corp. There are others as well. Uh, There are many others, and it's just a really an amazing, exciting time to be in this industry because these companies are able to raise money, test their geological theories, put holes in the ground to test those theories, Uh, and when they're finding major deposits, as several of them are, uh, it's a very exciting time to be owning these stocks. So I hope that you will consider once again to sign up for my letter. Uh, You know, one of the non-gold stocks that I'm extremely bullish about is Hannon Metals which has discovered uh, a deposit that I believe will be a massive copper-silver deposit in Peru. Uh, in, in just a few minutes, Michael Hansen, excuse me, Michael Hudson uh, of and Metals will be with me to give you an update on that company's San Martin project. Now this was Bob Moriarty's top pick for this year, and since then it has risen from around 17 cents in Canadian money to 38 cents, even before any drilling has taken place. But this is an amazing story as well, and one I think has huge upside potential, and it is so large, the deposit, it needs to be drilled and and delineated, but based on surface expressions, and they do know a lot about the third dimension of this geology because the oil mining, the oil companies were in there doing a lot of exploration earlier uh, before uh, before Hannon got involved in this, so there's a lot of geological information. They know a lot about the depth of these deposits and and structures, uh, and the surface Grades are very high, silver and copper. So a very exciting story. And you'll hear from Michael Hudson right after, uh, well, in just a couple of minutes as soon as we finish our f- first commercial break. Well, I've titled today's show Dollar Destruction and a Golden Chinese Currency. My main guest today is Alistair McLeod. Alistair argues that a dollar collapse is likely to occur by the end of 2020, taking all the synchronized Western economies and their currencies down with it. With a dollar collapse, China's interest will shift he, uh, Alistair argues, from supporting dollar strength to owning the world's reserve currency. But Alistair believes that will require China to back the renminbi or the yuan, with gold. And he says China can easily do that, given the vast supplies of gold it has accumulated over the past several decades. With a dollar uh, that Alistair believes not only, with the dollar's demise, Alistair believes not only gold, but other tangible assets, starting with other monetary metals like silver and copper, will thrive as well well we do have to go to commercial break now but uh, don't go away because as soon as we come back Michael Hudson will be with us to talk about the San Martin project which I think is well worth listening to Uh, it's one that I have invested in it is a top pick in my newsletter so I hope you'll hang around to hear what Michael has to say and then finally the second half of today's show I'll be talking to Alistair McLeod about some very uh, a very important issue as well so don't go away I'll be right back with Michael Hudson
0: Its flagship assets are located in the Pilbara region of Western Australia. Novo has recently partnered with Sumitomo Corporation of Japan to evaluate, advance, and develop the company's Australian gold projects. With over $40 million in cash and $60 million committed from Sumitomo, Novo is well on its way to establishing itself as one of the top junior explorers and developers in Australia.
2: Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again Michael Hudson. Michael is the CEO and chairman of Hannon Metals Corp. Uh, he also serves on the board of directors of that company. Michael is a geologist with a with a rich career as an exploration uh, geologist. Uh, I, I think of him as an economic geologist. I don't know if he uh, if he considers himself that, but I think every geologist that's involved in uh, in finding deposits, have to, has to start thinking about the economic potential of those deposits. And uh, I know Michael gives a great deal of thought to that, so hopefully we'll talk to him a little bit about that. His, uh, he's, as, as I say, a rich history. Uh, he's, he's been in Pakistan, Australia, and Peru. We spent a lot of time in Peru, and that's where Hannon Metals is involved in exploration and developing. Uh, what has the potential, I believe, to become a world-class sedimentary-hosted copper and silver deposit? Uh, The Hannon story is a very exciting one and one in which I think investors have a chance to make a lot of money. It's certainly one that I'm really excited about. I purchased it myself. It is a recommendation in my newsletter, so I'm really pleased to say hello to Michael. Thanks for joining me again, Michael.
3: Good morning from Australia.
2: And uh, good evening from, uh, from New York City here on Friday and your Saturday morning there. Um, I should just mention quickly to my listeners, Hannon Trades in Toronto under the symbol HAN. You can buy it down here in the States as I have under Uh, HANNF, 74.7 million shares outstanding at 39 cents in Canadian money, gives it a market cap of around $29 million in Canadian funds, so it's still a baby of a company, but it's a baby of a company with quite a uh, quite a large target that it's looking at and, and very nice grades so michael i'm wondering if you could maybe as much as possible in lay terms give our listeners a sense of the scale and grade of what you're seeing with your copper and silver sedimentary hosted deposit there it's known as the San, San martin project uh... in peru and then perhaps tell us uh, you know talk about some reasons for optimism with this project
3: Thanks Jay we 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 have this project that uh, you've outlined very well uh in northeastern Peru it's it's over the Andes and into the high jungle relatively new part of the world to explore uh that's seen a lot of oil exploration from the 80s but literally the the mineral explorers of the world haven't really done much work there and and so we we're, we're the first mover we've had got a staking rush around us now uh, in terms of other peers coming in but we've been slowly acquiring ground in this area since 2000 and 18 and, and then permits were started to be granted at the end of 2019. And then we, we literally got in there at the end of 2019 and, and, uh, and had four teams working and, and, and the opportunity has become very evident only over the last six months, really, how this project's been pulled together. So in lay terms, we have a, a sediment hosted system, which means that just much, very much like the layers of a cake, our copper forms at those layers and it's forming at layers that are incredibly vast. Um, we, we've got tenure over 120 kilometres and, and we, we've we got some very good past geological information from the oil explorers that allows us to say that one piece of the cake joins to other pieces mm-hmm. of the cake layer over that 120 kilometres. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the grade is good, um, you know, we're seeing grades that are, very similar to analogs at a much earlier stage. So the key analog here is what we what is called the Kufer Schiefer, which is is, uh, the world's single largest silver producer, even though it's a a copper mine and it's the sixth largest copper uh, producer on Earth. Also, it's in Poland uh, and and we're seeing grades and and thicknesses of similar scale. Um, But of course, this is exploration. It's early days and um, and there's inherent risk in, in, uh, in taking points in space and, and drawing lines between them without doing the work, and so we're trying to infill those lines.
2: Mm-hmm. Right, and um, well, so uh, when do you think you might start, uh, we always, you know, you're, you're looking at surface mineralization, aren't you? You're getting, right on surface you're doing these samples, grab samples, or I don't know, channel samples or grab samples, or, or what kind of samples are you getting?
3: Yeah, that's exactly right, Jay. So, so we're literally the, uh, the the prospectors of the past with our boots and our geological hammers, and and we're walking up creeks and finding little thumbnail green uh, chips, and they, these chips become bigger and bigger until you get boulders, you know, the size of sort of the bonnet of your car, and uh, and then and then they stop. So that's where where they're shedding down from the hills above us, and and we walk up the hills or find the roads and, and with, that's the impressive thing is that we're now becoming predictive in which areas to go and find where the rock comes to surface um, and then we can ship it and, and that's where we're getting those thicknesses and grades over tens and tens of kilometres. So so it's early stage, no drilling yet. Um, in fact it needs a lot more geological work to nail down just the better parts of the system and uh, we've got a, a team of four geologists and, and support staff ready to them back to Peru.
2: Uh, so, did you say you have people on the ground there now that can do that, or you, you're going to have to send some people in
3: to do that so that kind yeah, of it? it wasn't that obvious. We've got local team um, in, in Lima, um, and um, and yeah, one one senior person who comes in and out of the country, uh, Lars Dahlenbori, who's been the the brains really behind pulling this together on the ground but um everybody you, you never succeed i've 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 had a history of working around the world and and you you never succeed with bringing in foreigners you, you need to use local people and we've got local people working for us on the ground from a social licensing perspective today and and they're moving around the community and we're supporting the community and helping the community during this uh this terrible disease that is spreading around the world but um uh yeah the the other the other team members come from other parts of peru mhm
2: uh, let me just ask you, so uh, Michael, are these this structure is, is relative and flat lying. Then I guess, right? You're talking about beds that are that are flat lying, or are they, are, are, what's the orientation? You say you have a lot of information because of the oil drillers in the past, so you have some. You know a lot about structure, I guess, is what I'm getting at, right? And and the orientation of
3: these beds. Yeah, there's a few key points around that question, Jane. So it's it's a good one. We we do know um, at. At the gross scale where these where this layer exists over the 120 kilometres, we can be predictive where where it hits the surface, and 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 we we can be predictive of how it goes beneath the surface. We build a 3D model uh, from that vast data that's 300 kilometres long and 180 kilometres wide. So that's an unusual perspective to be able to do that in any basin in the world for a mineral explorer. The the other key point is that um, the orientation matters for potential mining. If um, these are these are quite thin, uh, at least at some of the areas that we found, we, we have found thicker zones as well. But if, if it's going to be thin, you want it to be relatively flat lying because then the mineability of it and the continuity of it, where you can actually mine it at, at a cost that uh, makes sense, is um, is much more amenable, I suppose. Is is a, is a key point. So you don't want it to be too steep, and and we've got gently folding, a bit like waves, right? They they go up and down, but it's uh it's not like a vertical wall. Well, that's uh,
2: that's positive. Then, of
3: course, uh, we'll
2: be learning much more as you uh, start drilling and we get the third dimension uh, in this uh, in this deposit. Uh, well, you know, the last time you were on, I think it was March seventeenth, so we we're some almost three months ago. Um, it is more than three months ago, or something like that. Anyway, I want to ask you, you've had a lot of information. I mean, just this month, you put out several news releases, and the stock has performed very well, even though copper hasn't really been, well, I guess it's up a little bit, silver's up a little bit, gold's been the, really the hot metal. But your shares are really performing quite well, I'd say, in spite of But you've had a lot of information. Maybe you could cover some of the things uh, that have taken place uh, since we last since we last spoke on March 17th. For example, back on May 28th, uh, you say you increased your granted mining concession by 50% in Peru So is that that, um, uh, that 110 kilometer strike that you're talking about I guess that includes that 50% in, in, increase in lands land size right
3: yeah, so what we had was uh, that that we had applications that moved to be granted, which allows us to work on them. So, so the the Peruvian oh, okay. administration was very busy, and 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 it's very important, right? Because an application is just a piece of paper. Mm-hmm. A a, a granted concession allows you certain rights to to potentially, uh, well, to explore it definitely and mm-hmm. potentially mine it. Um, we're not talking about mining now; we're just exploring. But uh, but it, it gives you that license. So that was. That that that's very um, you know, a, a key part of the story, of course. Yeah. Um, and and since since then the the results that have flowed since last time we spoke and how quickly time does go, uh, is from uh, from all the work we did uh, the the work programs during December through to March, uh, and and the key really the key aspect is that we we're demonstrating. The continuity um, of this project at various scales. So, so we're working literally over a hundred kilometers and, and then we started to narrow it down to sort of a 20 kilometer trend where we're finding these grades in, in outcrop that we just talked about. And, and then most importantly, we're starting to narrow it down over a few kilometers of scale and, and we, we found a new area. Uh, that's a couple of kilometres south of uh, you know, one area that we knew about, and and then we were able to find multiple points within a 500 metre trend, and 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 this is important because it's just demonstrating and building confidence at, at the different scales, and ultimately that will come by by drilling, but. But this is the kind of thing we we want to want to see, and, and there's a, there's a lot more work to be done and a lot more ground to, to walk on. And literally, you know, I, I was in the field uh, with teams just uh, at the end of February, early March, also, and and it was very exciting. You know, daily that the teams were bringing back new discoveries of copper and silver, uh, and um, yeah, you know, there's nothing more thrilling than than uh, than that for an exploration geologist.
2: Mm. Absolutely. Well, I guess you're, uh, you're able to do an awful lot of work in preparation for that drilling then um, before you start to do the expensive, the really expensive work and start putting drill holes down. Uh, you are pretty well funded, though, I believe, aren't you, Michael, for what you're doing now anyway?
3: Yes, we raised $2.2 at the Canadian at the end of December, January and uh, we had a one and a half million dollar budget, which we're only a little bit into, really. Um, and that included some drilling that we hoped it was going to be at the end of this year. Of course, that's going to be pushed into next year now, with uh, with the, the delays we've seen from the COVID lockdown. But uh, we've got one and a half million in the bank still, and and um, yeah, no 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 urgency to to seek uh, any funding necessarily. Um, all, although there's there's a hell of a lot of interest in this project, Jay.
2: Oh yes, there is indeed, and I think given the scale and the grades and all, all of that, uh, I can't imagine that there aren't uh, some some big uh, big mining companies that at least know ab- about what you're what you're about or know something about what's going on there. Uh, just with a couple of minutes left, then Michael, you know you you've had a lot of experience. You've worked. Uh, you've been in this industry for quite a few years. Give us an idea of what. Really has to come together to make something work, to make something really, really good. Um, what what are some of the ingredients? I mean, we we know that uh, it's always good to look at people who have been successful. It's one of the reasons that you're in my newsletter and why I like to look at your company. Projects always matter. Can you fund those kind of things? But just in general, what what should investors? Because there's a lot of new people starting to pay attention to this space now. What should they really be watching for? Uh, what does it take from a, from the early stages as your as your project is uh, t- to make it work? What should people be watching for?
3: Yeah, it's really a question around um, management of expiration, which is really only similar to if, if uh, you're going to find another industry that uh, is a comparable is R and D in the pharmaceutical business. So mm-hmm. so we have scientists who are who are second. Well, who collect data, uh, make theories and then collect more data and alter their theories based on, based on that new data. Um, it's often unsuccessful. Exploration is a, is, is not a very forgiving (laughs) business and, and and it's not many geologists that make those discoveries. And, and literally we've got a filter. And so it's, it's risk management internally, um, and, and that's risk at so many different levels, um, geological risk, political risk, uh, geological, the, the, the details of every little piece of data that we take in the field every day, whether we should go back and explore there or explore anywhere else. But, but simply put, you, you, you want to back your technical team if you have the right people. You want to, uh, give them consistency of funding. But you don't want geologists who are starting to prove something is not there, so you want them to move on because it's a it's a cost benefit uh, business, and 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 like any business is, and and you don't want uh, to spend dollars when they'd be better spent elsewhere. So, so really, what we do, uh, and and the simple line is back the right people is, and and those right people are are the the managers of risk, uh, and then you you've got to have the a sniff or a sense, and it's tenacity of only a few people that I know who who make those discoveries, and 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 they're generally the people that are hard to manage. <laughs> they're the people that go out on a, on a limb and uh-huh. uh, and and you know that go the extra mile, you know, like extra fifty meters up the hill to, to get that outcrop.
2: Uh-huh. So they've had you know people that have that, a, people that have a mind of their own, as independent thinkers, I guess. Also, so if I hear what you're saying is fatal flaws. If you can find the fatal flaw early on and move on to another project, that's that's one of the keys, right?
3: That's one of the key points, absolutely, because geologists tend to, to fall in love with a project that, that's said, and and so you want geologists who, who who are commercial, who know all all the aspects of whether something can work, and that's just not rocks in the ground, but that's social risk, political risk, that's metallurgical risk, that's mining risk that we've touched on um, in our talk today. So there's there's so many aspects, and and uh, and 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 another show in the making there for you, Jay. I think we're going to talk about oh, we, um, we uh, should, one through. We
2: sure could do that and, and i find it very interesting that you compare it to the pharmaceutical pharmaceutical industry because my good friend chen lin who does very well both in the exploration industry and in the pharmaceutical industry says the same thing it really uh, it's very much very similar in many ways so uh, i guess that's about all the time we have today any any last word maybe what people should be watching for any news that might be on the horizon
3: well we're keeping working behind the scenes here Jay with um with so many things both technically we can work with the, with the data and we're talking with lots of potential partners as well so so we we're, we're still very busy in Hannon and and the newsfly will continue Wonderful looking
2: forward to it it's an exciting story for sure so thank you very much Michael for being with us and
3: uh, we'll look to keep up with you in the future Always a pleasure Jay thank you for having me on again
0: Sources trading under GBR on the TSX and GTBDF on the OTCQX is a gold exploration company focused on their 23 kilometer flagship Dixie project in the prolific Red Lake Mining District of Ontario. Having recently made multiple high grade gold discoveries, GBR is fully funded to complete a very active 200,000 meter drill program through to the year 2021. Stay up to date on what's been considered one of the best-performing exploration stocks in the last two years by visiting greatbearresources.ca. Voice America Business Network,
3: the bottom line in business.
2: Welcome back to Turning Hard Times and Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me uh, one of our most frequent guests, Alistair McLeod. And Alistair uh, writes these weekly essays at gold, uh, at goldmoney.com. Goldmoney.com. He is a senior fellow there. As a, uh, I, I suppose I don't need to spend time telling you all about Alistair McLeod. He's on so frequently, but I do like to remind you that he is, uh, he's been a stockbroker and he's been deeply involved uh, in the markets Um not just any stockbroker, I have to think. I, he never was my broker, but I have to think that Alistair was always diving deeper. Can't imagine that he was just trying to sell people uh, stocks just for the sake of making money because that's not. Alistair is a deep thinker, and that's why we like to have him on. He helps us to understand why things are happening, not just the fact that they are happening, but to understand the underpinnings, the uh, dynamics underneath, uh, and uh, that's why he's so valuable to us. Thanks for joining me again, Alistair.
4: That's very much my pleasure, Jay.
2: Yeah, it's it's really great, and I think we should tell people that. I think it's uh, every Thursday, more or less. It's Thursday, isn't it, when you put out your your most recent piece, or is it Friday, Wednesday? I get no, it on it's, Thursday.
4: It is Thursday, yes. Yeah, Thursday. Uh, so it's Thursday. Mm. But actually, um, if, sorry, if I can just interject, yeah, uh, sure. I actually put one out tonight on oh. uh, the the COMEX position in gold. Oh, good. Which I think you're. Your listeners might be interested in looking at um
0: I bet, I, it's, I it's
4: actually a very i think it's a it's a very interesting juncture in the gold market at the moment so from that point of view i can recommend it even though i wrote it
2: well absolutely uh so they should go to gold money and it's uh, the research page and i think it's gold money insights insights is what you write that's uh, correct yes yeah, yes it, exactly well i'll be looking forward to that and uh because we have so little time to, to cover what I want to cover, I won't ask you about that more, but we'll certainly be talking to you about it in the future, I'm sure. Um, today, I I, topic, I, I, uh, I named today's show The Dollar Destruction in a Golden Chinese Currency, and you wrote three articles, Alistair, uh, June 18th, uh, the crisis goes up a gear, uh, June 25, a collapsing dollar in China's monetary strategy, and then July 2nd, prices are going to rise and fast. Those three topics and I'd like to get into the crisis, first of all, maybe talk about the crisis goes up a gear, your June 18th article. In that article, you wrote, and I quote, dollar-denominated financial markets appear to have suffered a dramatic change on or about the 23rd of March, end of quote. So what changed on that day, Alistair, and what do you think the markets were telling us with those changes
4: well, it was it was just a fascinating juncture where suddenly um, everything had been in one trend, trend uh, in one going in one direction. Whatever that direction was, some things were going up and some things were going down. And then suddenly they all reversed at that point. And uh, gold, for example, bottomed on that day. In fact, actually, it was the day before that, the business day before. Copper, Dr. Copper tells us all about. Um, Chinese demand for industrial materials and so on and so forth. That, after a period of falling, took off. Uh, The US dollar's uh, trade-weighted index peaked at about 102, and since then it just uh, tanked, really. Um, Mm -hmm. The S&P 500, another one, that had been going down, and uh, now it's been going up. And that was, again, the turning point. Silver-gold ratio, another interesting one. And last but not least, of course, um, uh, oil, the WTI. But there is a caveat on oil because the following month, there was that problem with the contract. If you remember, people were uh, not expecting to take delivery when the contract came due in April. And uh, consequently, they had nowhere to put it. And they had to sell it, get rid of it at any price, including a negative price. A negative price, yeah, incredible. Yeah. So, so um, uh, you know, that there were distortions in the markets. But the thing that's interesting is that there wasn't this sort of inflection point where suddenly uh, everything changed. Absolutely right. everything.
2: So everything basically, the dollar started to go down and everything else tangible started going up, and, and as well as the stock market, which has tangible and intangible elements to it.
4: Uh, yes, that's correct. Um, I would say the stock market is more—it's um, it's financial assets. I mean, the reason they went up, I think, is that it became perfectly clear at that time that mm-hmm. the Fed was just going to print money like bilio to uh, support asset prices, and um, you know, people got the hint. And I don't know—it could yeah. be that central banks are in there buying stocks as well. I mean, yeah. certainly the Swiss National Bank is being buying. U.S. Mm-hmm. stocks, um, right. so, but it, it was just an interesting point.
2: Yeah, well, in spite of the fact that the, that the central banks are, are suggesting, and not suggesting, they are pumping huge amounts of money into the system, um, I mean, we had the repo issue, which I think has still not been resolved by any means, but you state uh, in your June uh, 18th uh, article, you said, and I quote again, at this stage, an imminent banking crisis is now a near certainty with most systematically important banks in a weaker position now than at the time of the Lehman crisis, end of quote. But Alistair, here in New York and in the U.S. here, we're assured that our banks are in great shape. They're well capitalized. Uh, What what are you seeing that differs from that?
4: Well, uh, I would would agree to uh, an extent that your banks are Uh, Well capitalized but only well capitalized in comparison with uh, particularly the European banks Mm -hmm. I mean some of the bank European banks are just absolutely incredible the measure that I would use is not uh, the balance sheet equity to total assets, but the market value of that equity uh, mm-hmm. in terms of the companies the, the bank's capitalization relative to the balance sheet now mm-hmm. if you take that in other words what we're saying is this is what the market reckons the equity capital on the balance sheet is worth uh-huh. in the case of society general uh, at that time the price to book which is what we're talking about mm-hmm. was 20 percent i mean mm-hmm. in other words uh, the, the price in the market was at an eighty percent discount to the book. Now, if you work that through in terms of relative to total assets, uh, Societe Generale have a leverage, as far as as far as the market cap is concerned, of one hundred and eight point seven times. Wow! You know, Deutsche Bank seventy four times, Group Crédit Agricole, another French one, 73.8. Barclays in Britain. This should worry us. Sixty-three point eight, and so on and so forth. Now, the best on that measure uh, really are the American banks because, uh, by and large, um, the share prices are trading at more or less book value. So I you see. haven't got that 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 huge difference. But um, if you look at the amount of debt that they have got to uh, deal with, um, I mean, it they have massive problems, uh, and uh, you, you know dollar debts are absolutely huge Mm -hmm. and these banks uh, have a problem and that is they want to contract the amount of outstanding bank credit Mm -hmm. but the fed needs them to increase the amount of outstanding bank credit to rescue all the businesses which are going sour Mm -hmm. so you know i i wouldn't say at all that the the american banks are in a good position it's only a relative story compared with um, banks elsewhere
2: so the U.S. banks want to contract their balance sheet. They want to make fewer loans, no doubt, because they're looking at the economic landscape and they're, they're not liking what they see for obvious reasons, I guess.
4: Yes, I you know just just imagine if you're a director of a bank, uh, you've not only got the COVID thing, but you're also seeing how global trade is contracting because your bank will be international in terms yeah. of its 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 reach. Um, you'll be seeing uh, customers with supply chain pr- uh, payment problems. Um, you know, just product isn't getting through. It's not they're not getting paid, and they're still going to pay the rent. And you've got uh, you know, shopping malls and all the rest of it who are not getting their rent. I right. mean, you know, you're sitting there thinking now, is this is this an economy you want to expand your lending into? I would no. I would say no. I would of definitely not. say no.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So there's a, a real conflict between the Fed and the banks and well, uh, so uh, Alistair, you you've made these these alarming predictions that I think you think you can't know for sure, but it's you think for with all the information you can you can pull together in your view that the dollar could be in some really big trouble before the end of this year globally i guess as the world's reserve currency uh... i would like to ask you then do you see a banking crisis as a trigger that might start to cause the dollar to to shake it's already down as you pointed out from its high on march twenty-third from about one hundred two i think you said on the trade index but do you see a relationship then between the potential banking crisis global banking crisis uh, and the dollar uh,
4: yes i do um, it's 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 slightly broader than uh, as you suggest because mm-hmm. i don't think it's just the american banks i don't know where it'll start it could start in europe i mean that's that's um, you know that that's where the betting should go uh, but i really do think that um, the banking crisis when it happens will be uh, so all-embracing it, it won't be like the 1930s. You know, you get one bunch of banks going bust and then another bunch going bust and then another one going bust. I mean, you had rolling uh, bankruptcies in the banks between 1930 and 1933. This, I think, will be a global problem. It'll be like the Lehman crisis. Suddenly we'll wake up one morning and think, oh, my God. You know, this, and, But it'll be worse than Lehman. Now, what it means is that all governments will have to rescue their banks, the whole lot. Now, this will involve, effectively, underwriting not just the banking system, but all their customers. So the inflationary implications are absolutely enormous. And I think the banking crisis, when it happens, is a wake-up call as to really what's going on. It, if you like, is on the path to the destruction of fiat currencies. It won't be a cause of
2: it. Uh Alistair, let me ask you. what comes after trillion? What's the number that comes after trillions? Quadrillion, I think. We have, <laughs> we have billions, we have trillions. I, yeah. I mean, how many? I mean, there's. I guess we can do hundreds of trillions or billions of trillions. I don't know. I, 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 don't, I can't get my head around what a trillion dollars, what a billion dollars is hard enough. So what you're well, saying is if I understand all currencies, all Western currencies at least, are going to be in deep doo-doo yeah that
4: is unless uh, the you know the national leaders somewhere um, sort of get to the point where they can actually call a halt to it mm-hmm. and introduce sound money policies it's going to require two things it's going to require stabilizing the currency which is probably best done by linking it to gold at some at some level mm-hmm. uh, and the other thing is it means cutting government commitments, financial commitments, and letting the economy sort itself out. I mean, that broadly is what used to happen before uh, Hoover, President Hoover, Herbert Hoover, started intervening in the wake of the uh, Wall Street crash. Um, Before then, uh, the recessions, depressions, if you like, were really quite quick affairs. The problem is that governments, when they intervene in the economy, they stop the process of creative destruction because right. you need to reallocate national resources from yesterday's businesses to tomorrow's businesses and that can only be done by entrepreneurs it cannot be done by government
2: mm-hmm yeah for sure um, in commenting uh, on this subject of, of the currencies uh, decline the currency declines uh, you said and I quote anything that does not migrate from fiat pricing disappears including most, if not all, ETFs, goodbye to hedge funds, goodbye to yep. offshore financial centers, goodbye to onshore financial centers, goodbye to $100 trillion of fiat money. Uh, can you speculate about what life will be like uh, if this pans out as you're envisioning it? I mean, it seems like a, a very frightening scenario. Uh, You're right to call it frightening because um, an
4: awful lot of people
2: are going to get hurt and
4: uh, it'll be the people who are poorest. um, It will be the elderly. It will be the people who have been relying on pensions and the pensions will buy nothing. Um, So this is very, very serious. Uh, But to, to answer your question uh, what needs to happen is that sound money gradually comes into circulation and here we're talking about i think probably silver more than gold mm-hmm. uh, because silver if you like um, is i mean people have got a lot of silver there are lots of silver coins around and i think that they will become the currency i mean uh, th- there was a time i think uh, when um, your silver coins in america were pure silver those, mm-hmm. I think, will come back and have a value. People will recognise them mm-hmm. as money uh, for the exchange of goods. And uh, I mean, the amount, uh, the number of silver coins that have been produced—in your case, silver eagles—and so on and so forth. In our case, we've had the Royal Mint has produced huge quantities of silver coins, commemorative coins, very mm-hmm. much. And I think, I think they will probably come back into circulation. So, um, I think. That is if you like if you've got if you have silver coinage um uh, gold as well, but mainly silver for the day to day, then I think that that is probably going to enhance the chances of your survival in these times and also the survival of your families and friends mm-hmm. because yeah. you know you, you you must take account of them as well um, yeah, you know, it's not just it's not just um you know I've bought a whole load of silver coins, I'm all right, Jack, no. Yeah. Uh, no, you know, this is this is a community
2: thing, really. Absolutely. Uh, more than ever, it's going to have to be a community thing. And you have to wonder, uh, will trading silver or using it as a medium of exchange uh, be the black market, or will the government allow it to, to, uh, to, 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 uh, to take place? That's another issue, of course, that we don't have time to talk about today. But, you know, it seems to me, Alistair, what you're saying, what you're suggesting is that prices in terms of fiat, well, go, the fiat money will become worthless, essentially. Yes. Because it's just endless, you know, infinity amount of printing, infinite amount of printing will make it worthless so that people who actually own silver or gold, their purchasing power will, will grow dramatically, probably. So there will be a redistribution of wealth back towards honest money away from this dishonest, uh, what I would say, counterfeit money that governments produce, right?
4: I think you put it very well, yes.
2: Oh. So that's uh, obviously then people want to if they have some savings make sure they don't have it sitting around in fiat. And of course even since this new century began gold has outperformed Warren Buffett's uh, portfolio. So gold has done extremely well and silver has a lot of catching up to do. Uh, Alistair with regard to China, your second article that I referred to a collapsing dollar and China's monetary strategy published on June 25th. And again uh, folks, you can all you can read these articles. Uh, go to goldmoney.com and read them. They're archived there. Uh, but recently on this show, you suggested that you thought the end of this year that the dollar – you still stick to the, your timing or the idea that, that that this could unravel very quickly for the dollar, that by the yes, end of this I, year we could see the dollar ceasing yeah. as the world's reserve currency essentially?
4: Well, not just ceasing as the world's reserve currency, but ceasing as um, a currency, full stop. Wow. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, I'm sure – uh, yeah, go ahead very, 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 very quickly I mean all you need do is to edu- you know educate yourself about what John law did 300 yes. years ago yes. you know it's exactly the same situation except it's global rather than just restricted to France oh boy
2: uh, much worse and in that regard we don't have any place to run to uh, the whole world is in the same position or at least the Western world uh, yeah. but I'm sure you know China China's looking at this as you pointed out China has accumulated huge amounts of gold. And, and you have uh, done a lot of work on this you've observed flows uh, from the west to the east and so forth uh, and what do you think what do you think they're thinking now they're certainly aware that the West is in deep trouble yes
4: I, I mean this, this is such a um, such a difficult question to answer uh, without being Really, very long-winded about it. Yeah. I think they. I think when it comes to money, they're being defensive. Um, they would like to have the renminbi, uh, the yuan, if you like. Uh, uh, Used more commonly for international settlements, um, they are doing that through swap agreements with all sorts of central banks. Um, but the fact of the matter is that they've been using the dollar as the means of bribing, if you like, if we put it that way, uh, the politicians in sub-Saharan Africa, anywhere where they have a relationship or need commodities, and uh, you know, it's, it's dollars that they lend to these people. Um, it's not renminbi, if you like. So. Uh, if you like, they will lose all that power the moment the dollar goes. Uh, So it's not in their interest to undermine the dollar. Uh, So while we've got this cold war going on with China, I think it's worth bearing that in mind. So their uh, response to a collapse in the dollar, I think it's going to be reactive. There will come a point where they have to abandon the policy of buying off, you know, sort of, tin pot dictators in Central Africa or wherever, they'll have to abandon that and then start think about protecting their own currency. And at that stage, um, they, I think, will introduce some sort of gold backing. Uh, If they mess around with digitizing it, a crypto version of it or whatever, and this has apparently been going you know, being tested at the moment. Um, I think that would detract from it, but we'll just have to see. They are in a position to move, um, uh, to back their currency with gold, uh, with gold at a far higher price, incidentally. Uh, And I think the moment they do that, of course, it will uh, be absolute curtains for uh, any remaining fiat currencies that don't follow suit.
2: So what might trigger China's interest in doing that? At the moment, they're, they're, the dollar's worth something, and so they can still use that to buy uh, tin pot dictators, as you call them, in Africa, to, to gain their resources or whatever else they want to have from those countries. Would it be then the, this, this, this sort of cancer that kills the patient, this ongoing debt, debt-based debt uh, economy that we have that kills that basically brings down the dollar that would cause them to change a strategy because the dollar wouldn't buy anything anymore.
4: Yes, I mean uh, it will it will be it will be us that bring down the dollar, the pound, the euro, the yeah. yen and so on so it will be us who do it. Mm-hmm. What China will not want to do is to be in a position where we turn around and say it's not us, it's China that did it because that, you know, that would just I mean, that would be crazy. It would be wrong and crazy. So I think that there will come a time where they abandon the international monetary system and go their own way. But they will only do that when it's absolutely obvious that the international monetary system is in a state of collapse and will collapse without any
2: doubt. Yeah. But what you're saying is that could happen fairly quickly. I mean, it's not going to be 20 or 30 years from now.
4: No. I mean, all history says that uh, you you, you can have a long, long period of uh, erosion of purchasing power for a fiat currency, but there comes a point where suddenly it's usually first the international um, users of it discard it, and they've got an awful lot of dollars to discard. So that's the first phase. The second phase is that the man in the street, Main Street, if you like, realises Uh, the fraud that's been perpetuated through the printing of money. He realises what's going on. He realises that the purchasing power of the money is going to zero, and he gets rid of it as quickly as possible. And that stage in Germany uh, in 1923 was basically between about May and November 1923, six months. This could be about six months as well. And going back to that March the 23rd date, I just note that that was an inflection point. Yeah. Um, and I think that's probably we'll look back the historians will look back and uh, perhaps identify as that that as that the turning point
2: in destruction of currencies. Yeah was well, continued as you said and just with a couple of minutes left yet I want to ask you in your uh, article prices are going to rise and fast July 2nd uh, you talked about monetary transmission problems as as part of the mechanism, I think, that that causes things to unravel. Can you just comment on what you meant by that? Uh,
4: Yes. Um, I I mean, I think the... The problem we've got is, is one we referred to earlier in terms of the transmission of uh, uh, the Fed's money printing, if you like, into mm-hmm. Main Street. At the moment, it's quite obviously going into Wall Street and nowhere else. Uh, so we've got this ridiculous situation where Wall Street valuations just don't bear any relation at all to what's going on in the real world.
2: Yeah, right. um,
4: so is that that is the transmission problem. And uh, it, it is it, it comes about because the banks, as we discussed earlier, do not want to uh, extend extend bank credit to anyone. I mean, they want to contract their balance sheets. They want Mm. to get out of risk. They don't want to take on more risk. So whatever the Fed says, uh, I'm sorry, but that's not the route that money is going to get into Main Street. And so, you know, it'll be helicoptered, whatever. Um, There will be direct loans to uh, uh, corporates, and uh, I guess the uh, U.S. Treasury uh, will probably end up buying out or, if you like, acquiring all the banks, um, acquiring major businesses, trying to support the whole caboodle. And, of course, um, you can't support uh, the whole of the uh, uh, um, uh, private sector economy uh, without destroying your currency. And I think there's there's, there's one little uh, myth which I try to destroy in that, and that is that the Keynesians think that if you get um, a, a contracting economy, then prices fall. No. Uh, yeah. If you get a contracting economy, it is both the supply side, um, you know, of product and all the rest of it and the demand side going down. But what happens in this case is that we can see you get stagflation, you get inflation, particularly of certain demanded items. I mean, right. nobody will be buying le- luxury SUVs or at least very few people will yeah. but everybody will be buying food everybody will be
2: buying energy and just mm-hmm. watch the prices of those of uh, those items, yeah You know, we're going to have to leave it go at that, I wanted to ask you about the economy I think the V-shaped recovery is a myth it's not going to happen that feeds into the things you were talking about the banks collapsing and so forth Alistair, we have to leave it go at that thank you so much for sharing your insights always very valuable And that's uh, we my hope pleasure to do- Hope to do it again sometime soon. Well, folks, that is it for this week. Next week, Jeff Dice of the Mises Institute will be with me. Chris Taylor uh, of uh, Great Bear and Michael Oliver will be back next week. Until then, goodbye and God's blessings to you.
1: Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Benchmark Metals is a gold-silver exploration company that is embarking on its largest program to date on the Lawyers Project, with up to 50,000 meters of resource expansion and definition drilling planned in 2020. The multi-million ounce potential project is expected to have a new mineral resource estimate and PEA study completed in 2021. The company is backed by the Metals Group Management Team and believes this aggressive program will be complemented by one of the strongest commodity bull markets in decades. Visit BenchmarkMetals.com and subscribe to follow their success.